You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Hey, I feel all right now. Hey, I feel all right now. Do you feel like I do right now? Do you feel like I do right now? Motivated. Okay, folks, that can mean only one thing. Uh, you've got David's pick on the air right now, and uh, on the line with us is uh, our special guest today. And this is really sort of a mixing. It's uh, the uh, Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame show, as well as David's pick. We've sort of combined them, and we've got a very special guest. And for some of the veterans um, that are listening, I'm sure, I, without a doubt, you came out of surgery and you saw this lady and she was the angel in your eyes and heart as you uh, came out. She was a post-operative nurse in Vietnam. Welcome to America's Web Radio and our show today, Diane Carson Evans. Good morning, Diane. Good morning, David. Okay, so I've sort of told part of your story. Um, let's get right into it. And uh, tell us, uh, why did you decide to uh, go to Nam or join the Army? And uh, were you already a nurse? Well, I guess, David, the timing was right for me. I graduated from high school in 1964, and I started... Uh, studying nursing in Minneapolis that year, and now it's 1965, and my brother is drafted, and my farm buddies, my 4-H buddies, I was uh, growing up in Minnesota on a dairy farm, and these boys who were farmers weren't getting college deferments like my brothers because they wanted to go on and be farmers, which they eventually did. So now I'm studying nursing, and I know there's a war going on in Vietnam. I have a brother already in the military with the 101st Airborne. He volunteered, and I'm watching the 6 o'clock news every single night, and I'm seeing casualties. I'm seeing body bags. I'm seeing helicopters picking up the wounded, and those images just were so um, powerful. And as I was studying nursing, I decided I'm going to join the Army and I'm going to go to Vietnam. And I walked down 10 blocks to an Army Nurse Corps recruiter in Minneapolis and walked in and (laughs) told her I was studying nursing and how could I go, what did I have to do to go to Vietnam? And, of course, she said, well, you sign on the dotted line and the rest (laughs) is history. And And literally the rest is history, huh? They don't seem to uh, take too long to get you in, do they? No, and I'm having a harder time hearing you, David. Okay, is, uh, is that sorry. a little bit better? That's all right. Is that a little bit better? Uh, well, <laughs> it's, right. it's hard. I'll, I'll... Okay, well, it's, it should be uh, about there, okay? Okay. And, um, okay, so you go, to, uh, you go to Vietnam. You've been watching the news and so forth. And uh, was it what you expected when you got there? 
Well, you know, I don't think any of us know what to expect except, you know, what prepares you for war, but war itself. What I expected was what I saw on the 6 o'clock news, but that's very different for a nurse. Uh, I didn't see any nurses. By the way, I kept looking uh, on the 6 o'clock news for nurses, and I I didn't see a single image. We saw the men, uh, the combat troops and the helicopter pilots and uh but we weren't seeing any images of women or nurses and so i didn't see the inside of a military hospital until i walked into one in august 1st of 1968 and the war of course was uh escalating 68 and 69 uh we had mass casualties frequently as you can imagine the names on the vietnam veterans memorial wall 1968 and 69 um, are very large and so it was uh, what we call on-the-job training I had finished my nursing school and I had finished um, basic training at Brook Army Medical Center where all the doctors medics and army and nurses go for six weeks of training but I (laughs) we weren't trained very well we weren't prepared for very well for the kinds of casualties and the numbers of casualties we were to face. And what surprised me um, uh, every day in Vietnam was we weren't just caring for uh, injuries from weaponry. Uh, in Vung Tau, the 36th evacuation hospital, which was off the South China Sea and closer to the Delta, and rice paddies, we had injuries from water buffalo who had gorged some of our patients and wow. terrible injuries from water buffaloes. We had snake bites that we weren't prepared for whatsoever and sea snakes from those uh, GIs going on R&R to Vung Tau and they were allowed to be on the beaches. Well, sea snakes are poisonous. Mm. And we had leeches, <laughs> which were horrible for the troops who were walking around in the ice paddies and the jungle rot of their feet, of course. But then we had those horrific landmines of every kind. And after I left Vung Tau and seeing the uh, myriad also of tropical diseases uh, of every kind you could imagine, including plague, and napalm and white phosphorus burns and also as we all know helicopter crashes we used to say they crash and burn well that's what they do and if the those inside that chopper were by the grace of god not killed um, they would come into our hospitals with, with terrible burns so we faced everything you can possibly imagine that we weren't prepared for in nursing school and we learned on the job and we just followed the doctor's orders and got in there and did the work to do everything we could to save these guys' lives. And you know, malaria and medical problems, of course, were also huge. Now, yeah. when I went up to play coup in the highlands on the, in the jungle, it was cooler. That part was nice. It wasn't as hot as in the Delta. Um, <clears throat> but now we're in the jungle. And we have all kinds of snake bites, and tigers are out there, and we had troops who were attacked by tigers, if you can imagine, and killed by tigers as well. Wow. And 
I was closer to the fighting when I went to play coup. I was head. I was now made head nurse in this post-operative surgical unit, and our soldiers, our guys, were coming to us largely from Cambodia. We supported the Fourth Infantry Division, who were being hit very hard in the spring of 1969. Is now I'm up there about January, February 69 until I left in August, and our so our our guys, our troops were coming in by helicopter sometimes 10, 20 minutes away. And because of the incredible field medics and the chopper pilots, those, those dust-off pilots who got, went into such terrible landing zones to try to bring the wounded out where they were being shot at in terrible weather, it was so dangerous. They were such heroes to us nurses. They, they, they brought them to us. And we tried to save them, or we gave them to God. Um, and we did everything we could to save their lives. And that meant we were working under duress because our hospital was also being rocketed and mortared. It was a very dangerous area. And with mass casualties coming in, we were short of uh, resources, human and supplies and we didn't have enough ventilators. And then the generators would quit because we, uh, we were working with generators. And so, you know, what, I don't know, David, to answer your question, there isn't anything that can prepare you for that. No. You, you learn as you go. You know, I, I and, guess, uh, um, were you in a Quonset hut type uh, situation or, or tents, or what were you in as far as the quote-unquote hospital? What was the question, David? Okay, were you in a in a Quonset hut or a tent, or what was the hospital type situation? Yeah, I'll give you a little bit of the lay of the land. There were there when I arrived in Vietnam, I think there were twenty three, or I've also read twenty seven hospitals in South Vietnam, America, United States hospitals, and they were there were there were evacu there were evacuation hospitals, there were surgical hospitals. There were must units, medical units, self-containable, transportable, which people think more of a MASH-type unit. They didn't work very well because they're deflatable, and, you know, the rocket, the shrapnel, rockets, mortars, shrapnel, those units would deflate. They quit using them, and they were also extremely hot. You had to have air conditioning going constantly in those. And then there were Quonset huts, and the Quonset huts were... Um, at the 36th Evacuation Hospital in Vung Tau. And it's a cantonment-style hospital. The, each unit, they're spread out, so if there is an attack, it doesn't take down the entire hospital. It takes out one ward or two wards. Um, and then when I went up to play coup, they were not Quonset huts. They were wooden uh, structures, wooden frame buildings. And we had screens for our windows. There was no glass, of course because it was, you know, we were being rocketed and mortared. And also the nurses' quarters at Pleiku, when I got there, they had gone from tents uh, to, in 1968 and 69, to wooden frame structures as well. There, there were five nurses in each, each, each uh, hooch. We called them hooch, yeah. hooches. So uh, was that CB work, or uh, was that the Army uh, Corps of Engineers work? Probably the Army. I, I didn't hear the entire question, David, but I, th I probably Army Corps of Engineers. 
They were they were the ones that built them. I would I would guess so. Yeah. So, okay, but well, if there's an Army Corps of Engineer veteran listening, he would t- he would tell us. Yeah. I'm not sure. When I got to play coup, what I remember so vividly, David, was I was flying by chopper over the jungle, and then I saw the defoliation. And so I'm landing, there's Campanari at Pleiku, and then there's the 71st Evacuation Hospital, which is 400 beds. It's huge, 400 beds of individual buildings. So, like, one, one building would be the operating room suite. Another building would be the recovery, you know, connected to the OR would be close by the recovery room suite the, or unit. And then one unit was purely malaria Ward, and then my unit was post-operative, where we got patients. We took care of patients before and after surgery, and um, there were um, so many beds in this hospital that it was rare that we even would see the other doctors and nurses in the other units, except perhaps at the mess hall. So there were people working in that hospital that years later I found out we were there at the same time, but we had never met each other. <laughs> Well, uh, and yet you hear stories on the other side that uh, you run into somebody from your hometown or something sometimes. Uh, yeah, and that was it. Was it was that was uh, always special to run into somebody that you actually knew. Yeah, it was uh, one of those things that uh, sometimes it's a big world and sometimes it's a very small world. But uh, Vietnam offered it all. I, I'm curious too. I, some of my buddies and friends that went in country and came back. There was also um, quite a uh, quite a bit of uh, parasites that uh, got in their systems. And what, what kind of uh, lab facilities did you all have? Well, the, those again at the evacuation hospitals. There was the building that was the lab and pathology, and then of course there was graves registration and. Um, in my unit, I drew all the blood work for the lab work. So the doctor would write the order, and I would draw blood. The lab tech would come, pick up the lab work. And what often would happen is we would have a wounded soldier come in who with horrific wounds, and we would load them with antibiotics, but their temperature would keep spiking. And then we would discover that he also had malaria. So we had to rule out malaria at the same time as we were, you know, trying to medicate these troops with not just analgesics and pain medication, but also um, huge doses of antibiotics. And now we've got malaria going on as well. So these troops would come in just with these horrific injuries, and then they may have also been drinking the local rice wine and developed hepatitis. Oh, wow. So there was, and the parasites were, of course, everywhere, the parasitic infections. So these guys, these poor guys were dealing with uh, so much uh, all at once. And our job was to, at an evacuation hospital, our job was to stabilize the soldier and send him to the next safe place the next best place and if he got the million dollar wound of course that meant he was going home and so the million dollar wound we stabilized the patient when he was stable enough to put him on the next uh, Arivac chain to get him back to the United States or to Guam or to Tokyo or to Hawaii 
or wherever the physician and <clears throat> they had decided where the next best place for recovery might be. So mm-hmm. burn cases were always very touchy, very um, like when when could we transfer a burn patient? And then they would often go directly to Brook Army Medical Center, which had the world's largest burn unit um, at the time. So it was all about stabilizing, doing triage, assess, making the assessment as to how long this patient would have to stay in our hospital to get him to the next hospital because with mass casualties coming in, we had to open up our beds to receive the new guys coming coming through. Uh, I'm going to take, uh, we're going to take a very, very quick break. And uh, in fact, uh, the way we're going to break this time is to tell everybody that if you're coming to Atlanta, or if you live in Atlanta and listening, uh, there's so many people that aren't aware of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. It's downtown in the Floyd Building, right across the street from the Capitol. And if you haven't been to it, you've got to go to it. Uh, it's just, it's incredible. Read about all the Georgians that saved our world in many ways, and uh you know, that fought for you and fought for me and uh, in many cases gave the ultimate sacrifice. Not only do we have the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame, but we also have, and, and you mentioned it, uh, and I want to come back to it, Diane, is that uh, in Johns Creek we have the healing wall, which is the 50% replica of the Vietnam Wall in Washington, D.C. This is the wall that traveled all over the United States and let people have closure in many cases, and, uh, you know, it was just uh, just super, and uh, and it is super. So make, uh, make plans, and also the Veterans Memorial in Peachtree Corners, and we have just a number of great places. So with that being said, um, we're talking to Diane Evans. And, uh, Diane, I wanna, one, I want to thank you for your service to our country during Vietnam. And uh, I'm sure that this goes uh, uh, for, uh, oh, is, uh, for everyone and the many people, that uh, the many vets that woke up and, and saw you taking care of them. And I, I would guess there's probably some out there that are listening right now that remember, they might not remember your name, but they would remember your face and remember how glad they were to wake up and, and see you there taking care of them. So thank you. So uh, we're still on the line with Diane, I hope. And, uh, I'm still here. To, okay. I'm still struggling with hearing you really well, but I. Well, I just I can't. <laughs> I'll blow up my system if I can. You turn. Okay. Can you turn your phone up uh, some? I've tried that. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, you know we can. I can take care of my end, but I can't take care of uh, the okay. other end. You know. We'll be good. And, I think. Yeah, I think we will. Uh, I'll just ask you to repeat the question if I'm not sure. Go ahead, David. Okay. Uh, no, I, I just was saying thank you for your service, and I'm sure there are a lot of uh, veterans out there that uh, would also want me to pass on the thanks that they're the ones that woke up and saw that you were the nurse taking care of them after they came out of surgery or 
whatever the situation might be. And uh, I'm sure they would appreciate me passing on their thanks and their gratitude. And, uh, you know, so many things changed. And I guess we, uh, during Vietnam, uh, we got the impression that everything was a mash unit and uh, there was nothing but laughter and pranks and funny things happening. And that was far from the case. It was quite a serious uh place that you were in quite a serious situation that all were were going through at the time and uh, let me ask i i don't know if this is appropriate or not but uh, i know when i was in emt there was only one situation that i ever followed up on and uh, i felt so sorry for the kid that we had taken to the hospital that i i just my own curiosity just had to follow him but did you have you ever or did you ever have any follow up follow up with any of your patients that came through and uh, and you worked with in post op? Well, yes. Uh, after I had founded the Vietnam Women's Memorial effort and uh, with the dedication of the wall in 1982, I was living in Wisconsin and I was out getting the mail and my neighbor came and talked to me he was about he was about my age and um asked some questions and and uh he mentioned that there was this uh memorial going to be dedicated out in washington dc and i said yes and i'm going out there for that and he said well was your husband there that's kind of a typical question and i said no um he wasn't but I was, so I want to go see, I want to go find a, a couple of names, and I want to see that memorial. And he said, oh, well, he said that he was there in Vietnam, and, and he was going out to the dedication as well. And I said, oh, well, when were you there? And he said, uh, 1969 with the 4th Infantry Division. And I said, well, I was caring for the 4th Infantry Division up in play coup in uh, spring of 1969 and he said i was wounded and then he looked at me and he said he rec- he said were you lieutenant carlson you have red hair and i do have red hair and i said yes i was lieutenant carlson and he he just uh, it was just incredulous he said you were my nurse i remember you wow and <laughs> it was march of 1969 and he had been wounded and he came into my unit and it was that was the first patient that was the first person that I had encountered that I had actually cared for in Vietnam and it was it was really extraordinary and um, he was also very incredulous and happy to finally meet his nurse and like you said I think David I think one of the things when the guys came into our hospital they felt safe uh, hospitals were not safe in Vietnam. Like I said, we were rocketed and mortared. And several months before I arrived at the 71st Evac in Pleiku, when the hospital had been attacked, um, several patients in their beds had been wounded again and were killed. Wow. Lying in a hospital bed, they were killed. Mm. And um, so uh, they, there was a false sense of security. But by and large, uh, if those chopper pilots could get the patients to us from the field within one hour, we had a 98% save rate 
We saved 98% of these guys if they could get to us within the first hour, um, that golden hour. The golden and, and hour, And, of course, yeah. if there was mass casualties, there was triage. And those who were the most severely wounded were not the ones that went to the operating first, the ones who were most salvageable and would take the least amount of time with the number of surgeons that we had and the OR staff it was all based on resources and how many wounded could we save. And the soldiers who were expectants, those were who were expected to die, were not left alone. There was someone who stayed with him, and I remember staying with one, someone one night and, and just stayed with him and held his hand until he, his hand went cold. And, but for us nurses, our, we didn't want anyone to die alone. Because we were all they had. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, what a story! And uh, you know, you and I talked uh, earlier this week, and um, I, I've got to circle back to something you said. And I guess my heroes of heroes are the dust-off pilots. They went through hell and back to save lives, to get in, to get the guys out or women out. And uh, they amazing, amazing chopper pilots. And I, I'm not sure that I've met one that feared anything. Uh, they certain, certainly didn't fear death itself, or they wouldn't have done what they did, because they were talking about in the line of fire. They went into hot zones, LZs that, uh, you know, were, were surrounded at times. And, uh, you know, there were a number initially, a number of the, the uh, and they flew Hueys. And if you were a wounded um, soldier and you heard that, I mean, very distinct Huey sound. If you heard that coming towards you, you knew that you were about to get out of there. And, uh, and Yeah, the sound of those chopper blades was the... Uh, uh was the sound of a benevolent God. It was like, talk about angels. Those, those guys were angels, too. And I, I have a story about a helicopter pilot for you. I was taking care of, he was burned, like they usually were, and um, recovering from his burns. And he was going to be okay. We didn't have to send him back to the United States. He was going to recover and go back flying choppers, helicopters, dust-offs. But it was his birthday the day I was taking care of him and I was hanging in his IV and I had looked at his chart and I said, happy birthday. I said, but according to your records, you're 20 today. Is that a mistake? And he said, no, ma'am, I'm 20 today. And I said, well, how can you be in Vietnam flying helicopters when you're 19? And he said, well, ma'am, I graduated from high school when I was 18. He said, I, I think he said he went to Fort Walters. And in nine months, he was a helicopter pilot, and in Vietnam at the age of 19, flying wow. dust-offs. Oh. I was absolutely incredulous. Like, how does that happen? Of course, us nurses, we were young, too. We were 21 by the time we got out of college. I was 21 when I arrived in Vietnam. And the average age of the nurses was between 21 and 25, so we were the young taking care of the young. But I think the reason that we were so brave... Uh, and fearless, David, is because we were young, and you know we felt I couldn't I couldn't see myself dead, right? I was so young, or my sense of mortality just was until I got to Vietnam. I, the the bullets didn't say no nurses 
I knew that. And some nurses had already died by helicopter crashes, and then Sharon Lane was killed when I was in Vietnam. She was on duty at Chu Lai, and their, their hospital was rocketed, and a piece of, she caught a piece of shrapnel, and she was dead in seconds. Hmm. And so no place was safe. But these helicopter pilots, they would go out on these missions without any regard for their own safety because their, our mission was to save lives. And, of course, the Army Nurse Corps' motto was preserve the fighting strength. And these chopper pilots would go into extreme conditions to bring out the wounded. So I agree with you. They were our heroes. And, of course, they brought them into us, and then they could leave them. And then it was our turn to do, to do our work. Well, and our work turned into often 14, 15, 16-hour days. If we were lucky, we got a day off. But it was all about our patients. It, would, it was never about ourselves. We had a job to do, and that was save lives. You know, the, the thing, too, that uh, it was like you were talking about OJT. Well, we had some OJT engineering on, on uh, Huey helicopters because initially the dust-offs, the pilots were being killed from the bottom up, and they, they wound up putting a... Uh, a steel plate in the Huey or on the bottom of the Huey where if they were shot at they could still be they could still take a rocket but they couldn't they couldn't at least be killed by ground fire shooting up and killing the pilot through his seat so uh, you know they did modify them and then they went from from the Huey as a medevac to uh, Huey as as a uh, fighting machine, and then they obviously developed the Cobra and everything else. But uh, as a gunship, it was a powerful tool that we used. And uh, but the the Huey pilot that was the dust off pilot, them, and I tell you somebody else, and and I I do this frequently on this show and other shows is that when I was <laughs> in and i was i'm called a vietnam veteran era but uh there were so many that were going in and and being patriotic objectors you know and uh i just really had a a hard feeling for him but many of those that went in went to fort sam houston and became medics and they risked their life many many times bringing people out and the conscientious objectors i changed my mind about with with the service that they performed without weapons all they had was a bag that had a red cross on it and uh, many of them died themselves taking care of the wounded and well, i can uh, attest to that david i had several conscientious objectors as medics in my unit in play crew and they were they were fantastic. Some of them had more education than I did. One of these uh, had a he got drafted, but he was a conscientious objector. But he had a master's degree, and here he was one of my medics on the unit, and he was he was phenomenal. Well, I can't say enough about our corpsmen and our medics and those field medics. And if they were lucky, they would let them out of the field after six months to come into our hospitals where they could feel a little a little safer but you know and the helicopter crew the door gunners those guys were sitting targets and they were there to protect you know that chopper and i'll never forget the door gunner that sat with me and 
I thought, well, he's not very friendly. He never said a word to me. He didn't talk to me. He didn't look at me. And I sat there, of course, my first chopper ride from Long Bend. I had just arrived in Vietnam, and there's a helicopter that has arrived just for me. That makes you feel important, right? <laughs> They're going to take me to my first assignment, to my first hospital assignment. And this door gunner doesn't say hello. He's just very unfriendly. So... I'm on the chapter, and we land on the Red Cross, the landing pad at the hospital, and I get down out of the chopper, and he says to me, ma'am, keep your head down. And that's the only words he ever said to me. And then I realized he was, he was doing his job. He wasn't there to be friendly and talk to me. He never took his eyes off the ground the entire time we were in that chopper. He never wow. took his eyes off the ground. And with his, you know, g big weapon, his gun, his, his yeah. <laughs> whatever it was called, out of that chopper. And I just, you know, those, you know, the life of a helicopter pilot and his crew was very, wasn't very long. There are a lot of names on the wall, on the wall, who um, those, and of course now the language today, David, you know, when I talk about my patients, they were all men. Uh, because there were some women in Vietnam who were wounded, but I never saw a wounded woman in Vietnam outside of Vietnamese. And we did take care of Vietnamese women and children in our hospitals. We took care of large numbers of them. But our wounded were the men because we weren't sending women into combat situations like today where women are losing their arms and their legs as well in large numbers compared to previous wars. But um, And, of course, I never saw a female helicopter pilot in Vietnam because we didn't have any. And we, even only, we only had two female physicians in Vietnam. Hmm. So if you weren't a nurse, a female nurse, now there were male nurses in Vietnam as well. Um, maybe almost one-third of the, female, of the nurse, nurses in Vietnam were male nurses. And so when we think nurse, we think female, but that's a thing of the past. You know, men and women are nurses today and have been for many years. So I uh, um, just wanted to, to clarify that. You know, this, this show and many shows um, remind me sometimes of Paul Harvey, Harvey and when he would do, and that's the rest of the story. But this, our shows are almost, this is the other side of the story. And uh, we're hearing, I'm hearing things from you that I didn't know. And, uh, you know, and I've never said I, I should know them. But at the same token, um, you know, I knew some of the pilots I knew and some of the folks that had come back and so forth. And the general public has no idea of Vietnam, and uh, you know we. I, I when you I got tickled or not tickled. I, I just thought to myself when you said uh, uh, that you went in and it was OJT on the job training, but that's the way everything was. Even even the the infantrymen, particularly the first in, we were not jungle trained. We were open field train and all of a sudden here we are in a jungle and and then uh you know i took i i did basic and ait at fort ord and um it was all jungle training then here comes desert shield and desert storm and we say why do we have green 
green APCs or green um, tanks when we're in the desert. And so they rushed all the tanks back and repainted them here in Georgia, as a matter of fact. But, you know, well, it, it's... Well, war is, you know, learn as, learn as they go. We were very, you know, ill-equipped and unprepared in early years of Vietnam very ill-equipped and unprepared. When the right. first nurse anesthetist, I know a friend of mine, when she got to Vietnam in 1965 and was assigned to what you would call a, a mass, mass-type hospital, it was a medical unit self-contained, one of those movable ones mm-hmm. that you blow up, and of course you can't blow them up and last that because the first time they're rocketed. So then there's sandbags packed to the hilt, sandbags everywhere to protect the sides, but you couldn't put sandbags on the top, so if something came from on the top, then, you know, that unit is is gone. She said her anesthesia equipment that she, that arrived to her hospital was from World War II. I can believe And she it. did not know how to use it. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And of course, they all they they built their own. They put up their own tents, and you know it's muddy, or it's depending on where you are in Vietnam, it's either mud and monsoons, or it's 105 degrees. And, and then to get in the types of injuries, I want to talk about the landmines. Now you, you talk about a landmine. Well, well, there's the so IEDs many, today. Hundreds the... of different kinds of. Well, the Viet the the NVA and the Viet Cong were very crafty with very little resources they didn't have a lot of money like we did with our weaponry and our jets and our you know think of the money that we poured in uh, to our de- department department of defense to have the to finally have the right equipment for our troops but they would they're they're uh, to demoralize the soldier and to decapacitate him maybe not kill him but to decapacitate him for months was to lace Pungy sticks, mm-hmm. which you just go out and get them, right? They're free. They're just growing. <laughs> Pungy sticks. They're sharp. With poison on with them. human feces. Mm-hmm. And the troops would step on those. And, you know, the, the combat boots were black leather boots. Well, finally they put, like you talked about, steel plates on the bottom of helicopters. Well, put steel plates on the bottom of their boots. So they designed jungle boots, which were lighter in weight and didn't create as much jungle rot as the black leather combat boots, which is what I wore for an entire year, the black leather, because mm-hmm. I found them more comfortable. So the troops would step on these punji sticks and have an instant injury and instant bacterial infection, which would cause gangrene, and they would die. And we took care of them in our hospital, and many of them got sent back to the United States because uh, if it's an orthopedic injury or if it gets into the bone, it's going to be a longer-term recovery. Well, then we had the bouncing Betty landmines, and they came came up with those to demoralize the troops because mm-hmm. they came up to hit the troop waist high. It would blow off his genitals, and it was horrible. Mm-hmm. And 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 then of course grenades and trip wires, and you know the the troops out there who are former troops who are listening to this could describe this a whole lot better than me. I saw the results of war. I didn't see how the injury happened. I know a little bit about what happened because they would tell us, but we saw the results of these things every day, and I can guarantee you every patient in my unit, and there were 65 patients in my first unit at Vung Tau, and I had 45 in my unit in Pleiku, every one of them had a different injury from a different cause. 
you know, high-velocity, of course, weapons, guns, and so on. But then the, there were accidents, vehicle accidents, and, of course, the helicopter accidents. And sucking chest wounds. The chest wounds were horrible. We had to get, they had to have tracheotomies. They had to be on ventilators. We did not have enough ventilators. And when the generator quit, we had to stand there and amboo them with an amboo bag to keep them breathing because you can't breathe without a ventilator, and right. but you could with an amboo bag, but that's a manual handheld where you're actually trying to put air, oxygen and air into that patient so they don't die. So and we, and we it, are can, uh, it can get very tiring very quickly. What's that? It can get very tiring very quickly when you're doing that. Well, we were exhausted. At and the end and, of the day. Uh, and when I, as I recall, it would be Bagum, and uh, that—that's when you would go for the uh, manual respirator, basically. Yeah. The, the other thing that uh, that I, I'm sure a lot of your patients mentioned at one time or the other, or you you knew, but many of the injuries that you saw were caused by stuff that we had left behind uh you know even from the from the uh, some of the poppin johnnies that they used uh, were from our sea ration cans we would just toss them to the side and say you know what the heck let let the Viet Cong clean them up well they cleaned them up and turned them into uh, weapons uh it was like our our laws that we uh, uh our rockets that were called laws if we just draw after we fired the rocket, they weren't reloaded, but the Viet Cong would take them and make martyrs out of them. And uh, there were just, you know, and we, we learned quickly that we would start policing the area so we weren't supplying the Vietnamese with weapons to kill us. Well, IV bottles. We didn't have bags back then. They were glass. Mm-hmm. And we had to start cr- crash- crushing them because they were being stolen. And the bottles were taken to their underground hospitals and for reuse. And so what you what you just said, David, is very true. They were very resourceful, and they would take our trash, and they would reuse it. And they were very crafty and in, ingenious at that. And um, because they didn't have the finances that we did, they... They became very, like I talked about with these punji sticks, just, you know, and that caused the crippling wounds, but it cost, it cost them nothing. And the, and the booby traps uh, we see on TV every now and then where the, where the uh, punji sticks not only were in the ground, but they also uh, would strap them to uh, trees with a tripwire and uh, yeah. s- spring up and get get our guys so yeah like you said you hit it right on the head they were very crafty and uh we we had to learn a lot and uh you know they i i can't imagine a cave as a hospital but that's and they had underground caves as hospitals but you know you wonder and and they were they wanted to save their people just like we wanted to save our people and, uh, that's right. You know, it's and uh, I, that's it, right, David. You're absolutely right. They they were as committed to their husbands and fathers and and brothers and and you know as, as we were to our guys. But I want to say something here about my patients because we hear a lot about the greatest generation, and they were great, and what they did for 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 us and for the world. And 
I would never deny that, and I hold them in high esteem. But there is greatness in every generation, and there was greatness in mine, and that was in my patients and in the Vietnam generation who served their country. We answered the call. Some of us volunteered, and we didn't have to go. Others were drafted and didn't want to go, but they did. And my patients, I know, were as brave as any other soldier in any other war. And I saw how they suffered. I saw how they died. I saw how they cared more about each other than themselves. It was always about the guy in the next bed. Oh, take care of him. His wound is worse than mine. I saw how they cared for each other when they came in. The lieutenants and the sergeants would come in to see their guys who had been wounded from their platoon and how much they cared for them. And those guys just wanted to get better and get back to their unit. And many of them did. We, sent, we didn't send them home. We send, we, we, re, they recovered, and we sent them back to the unit so they could get shot at again. And how, why do they have several Purple Hearts? Because they <laughs> were wounded again and again and again. And, and then to come home to this country and people, not all, but a lot of people, in this country turned their backs on these soldiers oh. or denigrated them or called them names. Or spit on uh, them going through the airport. What's that? Or spit on them going through the airport and yelling things at them going through the airports. And uh, we it was were, the most it was the most discouraging, sad thing I've ever seen. To know how these young men who had who had given for their country in the same way as all previous wars, but then to be treated so terribly uh, when arriving home. And it took years and years and years for them to even be able to admit they were Vietnam veterans. Because yep. we were made to feel like we should be ashamed of it. And it took the dedication of the wall in 1982 for people to finally wake up and finally look at who these veterans really were and what they had done. And, you know, thank yous came, but a little late and so many veterans suffered for years not just from their physical wounds but from the emotional wounds of um, the betrayal of our nation when we came home absolutely you've you've said it beautifully and you know and this is where we get the term ptsd and other wars it was shell-shocked or whatever it might be called in but uh you know and thankfully and this, this is, this, I, I like Israel from the standpoint of everybody serves their country. And I get very upset with uh, folks that in one shape, form, or fashion haven't served. This is all of us. It's all our country. It's not just, not just the people that raised their hand and went to Nam. It's everybody. And I get very upset with the, with the representative or senator that never served a day, and they're making rules, rules of engagement, and they don't know what they're talking about. And it goes on and on. And I I think everybody should serve in some way and, and certainly never, ever treat returning soldiers the way non-soldiers were treated. And it doesn't matter what branch you're in, how you served, it's just that you served your country. And, you know, another thing, Diane, that I we interview a lot of folks, 
And I don't know of a veteran that I've interviewed that if the call came, no matter what age they are, if they could get up out of the chair, they would go back in. Well, I have to say, David, that I've been asked, would I do Vietnam over again, knowing what I know now? And I said, in a heartbeat, I would do it all over again, even knowing what it was like. Because remember, every one of us who were 18, 17, 21, whatever age we were, we were naive. We did not know what we were getting into. We did not know what we were going to face or how we'd have to measure up. And, um, and, and yet, for those of us who would say we would do it again, I can say that because I went there to save lives. And someone has to do it. Someone has to stand up, like today. When you think of the tens of thousands of medical professionals we have in hospitals right now with facing risk, taking care of our COVID you know, virus patients who are very, very ill, and some are dying, and thousands are dying. But those medical professionals show up at work, and they know that they are at risk not for being rocketed and mortared. I say, you know, the only difference today is they're not getting shot at, but they're putting their life at risk to help others, and they show up. And I think that there is heroism, and we have that in America, and yet we have less than 1% of our population is serving in the armed forces today. And I worry about that because I think people assume that, oh, the volunteers will go fight for us. Let them volunteer. When we had the draft, people were drafted from every part of society in the United States. Um, I, I didn't believe there should be deferments. I don't think just because you're in college, you should be deferred. I don't think that was right, because I think that took a lot of those young men who weren't in college, um, and that was their choice. It took them. Why should those in college have been uh, Deferred. I don't think that was right. I think that was a mistake. Let us all serve and let us all step up and know what it's like to defend our country in some way. We don't all have to be combat soldiers. Some do, but there are so many ways to serve. So I agree with you, David. I think we'd be a better country if we, as individuals, um, knew that it was our responsibility uh, as well to continue to defend our country but also to make it a better country in some way that's why i'm so proud of my youngest son that's in the air force and is going to make it a career and i always go into this little spill too he's making it a career and he's stationed in germany right now he'll soon be back in the states uh he's put his six in and going for his 20 i think but anyway, that's neither here nor there. Uh, but I, I love him dearly and appreciate his service for his country. With that being said, I'd like to point out the fact that if you're listening to the show and you've got a grandson, granddaughter, you, you are a, a young person listening to the show, and you haven't decided what you're going to do, please, please look into the military. It doesn't matter which branch, whether it's Army, Navy, Marines, Air Force, whatever. Just look into it because it can be a wonderful career. Like my young son, 
He and his wife have traveled all over the world. He wound up getting his master's degree while he's been in. And, you know, it's a great life. It really is. Yes, you're separated sometimes from your family, but at the same token, the military offers everything from education to uh, advanced training in an area. And once you get out of the military, if you decide to or if if you decide to make it a career, either way, you are trained and well-trained and wanted and needed in industry and in business and in whatever it happens to be. But you have gotten something that, like like Diane points out, and I hate that statistic, but 99% of the population doesn't have that, doesn't take the opportunity to get what the military will give you. I'll get off my soapbox. Would you Would you agree with that, Diane? Well, we know that there there should be choices out there for our young people to serve in some way. My daughter served in AmeriCorps for two years because she she said, "Mom, I don't think I want to go into the military, but I want to serve somehow." So she served in the AmeriCorps, and then, of course, that's domestic Peace Corps. Peace Corps takes you overseas. AmeriCorps takes you here in the United States. So there are many ways to serve, but for me, the military was a privilege. It was a privilege to serve my country. And I think if we look at it as a privilege to do our part, and it was a privilege to care for those young soldiers, it was not easy. But uh, we need people to step up and do the important work. And so, and then on on the last note here, David, if I may, when women uh, step up to serve, as they have for centuries, we need to remember and honor them equally as we remember and honor our brother veterans. And that's why I worked so hard for 10 years to honor and remember the women of the Vietnam War by placing the Vietnam Women's Memorial statue um, just 300 feet from the apex of the wall in Washington, D.C. And it took 10 years because there was opposition. David, believe it or not, people weren't supporting women, veterans, back then. They, they thought that we should just come home and get on with our lives and, you know, have babies and whatever. But women... Um, also served, and many of them who stayed in the military and went on and became, you know, top sergeants, they became leaders in the enlisted ranks, they became for the first time generals. When I was in the uh, Vietnam, we didn't, we couldn't have a female general. 1970, first woman became a general, so we've made progress, and each generation of women opens doors for the next generation. Like today, women are in you know, every role, basically, in our armed forces. But we need to honor and remember them in our memorials as we do the men. And so the Vietnam Women's Memorial, which is a monument of three women, and one of them is tending to a wounded soldier, is a monument to remember their contribution and the value of their service. And that is, um, I think, critical to our to our nation and to men and women knowing that if they're going to go off and put themselves in harm's way and in peril, 
that they are giving of themselves and sacrificing maybe their lives, that their nation is behind them and supporting them and welcoming them home and then taking the steps outside of just symbolic gestures, but real gestures to take care of them financially uh, and with our Veterans Administration, keep that VA, keep those VA hospitals strong, keep them funded, and protect and take care of our veterans like they took care of us. Absolutely. No no question about it. And thank you for spending the time and the effort to get that placed at the Vietnam Wall. I, th- I think that's wonderful. And um, maybe you can uh, do the same for the Johns Creek uh, version of the, well, it's not a version. It is the wall, but it's a 50, 50% size of it that travel all over the United States. And uh, it's on display, and I think it would be great if the if the same monument were or statue were were put in there in in uh, Johns Creek. I'll talk to him about it. You know, because you're right. Uh, women play, have always played it, and you know, and I also bring up the fact that women play whether they go into the service or do whatever. If their husband is serving. The woman is serving as well. The wife is serving just like the husband. Maybe not under fire there, but under fire stateside, taking care of the kids, taking care of this, taking care of that. And they sacrifice just like the men do. And in many cases, maybe more. You're right, David. And now we have husbands at home with the kids while their wives are overseas. Yes, ma'am. So today it's working both ways that the spouse might be the husband. And he's holding up the whole home front, and he's not in the military, but his wife is in the military, and she's overseas. So now we're seeing a whole different landscape of uh, military service among men and women with so many, what is it, I think now it's 15% of our military uh, are women. When I was in the military, women were less than 1% of the entire military force, so we've come a long way. And we see that women have stepped up and proven themselves and are capable and able. And uh, it's, <laughs> I think it just makes us a stronger nation, a stronger yes, society when we uh, allow women to right. be in the ranks uh, when they're capable and um, meet but the same criteria. Diana, I hate uh, to interrupt you. But what is required to get the job done. Yeah. I hate to interrupt you, but I have to thank you and tell you we're out of time. And uh, thank you for your service. And I always ask, will you come back and be on again? Oh, of course. Thank you so much for having me, David. Well, this has been great. And uh, you're listening to America's Web Radio. And want to thank Diane Carson Evans for giving, sharing her stories and talking about her service to our country. Thank you again, Diane, and we'll be back with more after this. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.